0: From News Talk 580 1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now, here's your host, Mark Kepler.
1: about California's and the Valley's electorate. It's changing, but what are the numbers and what are the trends? We'll hear first from Mindy Romero, the director of USC's Center for Inclusive Democracy, and then Dean Bonner with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California about the state's changing electorate. We'll then get an analysis of the Valley's changing electorate with political science professors from the Valley's major universities, Tom Holyoke with Fresno State and Jessica Trounstein with UC Merced.
2: Funding for the MADI Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students Serving Students. BNSF Railway, Moving Our Economy for 160 Years, and The Wonderful Company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler.
1: Welcome. The 2020 general election was historic for many reasons, not the least of which was voter turnout. Over 70% of California's eligible voters voted, the highest turnout since the general election of 1952. And that was in the midst of a once in a generation pandemic. Our guest is Mindy Romero. She's the director of USC's Center for Inclusive Democracy. And she's written that, quote, the method in which Californians decided to cast their ballot was equally remarkable with notable changes in voting behavior and patterns that could continue in future elections. Welcome back to the matter report.
2: Thanks for having me again. It's good to see you.
1: So, okay, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Voter Choice Act. A lot of people attribute uh, these voter changes to that. Can you give me a brief synopsis of the Voter Choice Act?
2: Sure. Pretty simple. Um, it's a new model that if you adopt it, if a county chooses to adopt it, they have to adopt all the elements. They can't pick and choose. Um, every registered voter in that county gets automatically mailed a vote-by-mail ballot. Uh, there's a change from traditional neighborhood polling places to what we call vote centers, which are less numerous, but you can you can go and vote at any vote center in your county as opposed to being assigned a, a local polling place. You can vote up to 11 days or 10 days before the election and election day. Drop boxes are required, and uh, they're numerous throughout the county, and um, you uh, have additional services that are available to you if you are. Voting.
1: It, it, it just made voting a lot more convenient for a lot of folks. It, it, it seems provides like-
2: more options uh, and an earlier, longer time frame to be able to vote more ways, more days, as they like. And, and what
1: you found is a lot of people were voting by mail. I'm just wondering, why do they vote by mail? Do you attribute that to the, the Voter Choice Act, the pandemic, or just voters are changing the way they vote?
2: Yeah, I think it's too early to attribute anything to the Voter's Choice Act because for most counties in 2020, it was the first time they were adopting it. Um, really probably more than anything else, the pandemic as it changed so many aspects of our lives and uh, people were, we know from previous research that we've done survey research that voters were concerned about safety and you know, voting in person. They had more mm-hmm. options that were available to them statewide, whether they were a Voter's Choice Act county or not because of the pandemic that you was know, legally that were um, prescribed to them. So I think um, people had more options and they were also motivated to vote in different ways because of that pandemic.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering, what about demographics? Are there certain groups that prefer to vote in person versus vote by mail or, or the opposite? Want to vote by mail as opposed to vote by person in person?
2: Yeah, we saw differences in 2020 and actually they were pretty consistent with differences that we've seen over like, the last 20 years in California. Um, what changed was just more people used vote by mail or used a vote by mail ballot in some way. Um so we know historically, uh, Latinos, young voters, new voters, uh, tend to prefer, uh, at least in percentages, voting in person versus vote by mail. In 2020, still overwhelmingly, Latinos and young people and new voters used vote by mail. Um, uh, you know, there's a difference geographically. There's a difference by party. Um, and well, let, me, of, let me ask
1: you. Let me, I, yeah. I actually want to follow up on the one by party. That's I find really interesting. So political affiliation. Was there a difference in vote in person versus vote by mail by party affiliation?
2: Yeah. So um, everyone in 2020 that cast a ballot, of all those voters, just under 13% actually voted in person. But if you break it up by party, it was 9% of all Democratic votes. Again, um, how people are registered, not necessarily how they actually voted. I and know. about 18% of all Republican votes were um, in person. Wow, that's
1: that's pretty stark. Well, where did do, where do the independents fall? Were they more likely to vote by mail or in person?
2: They're kind of in the middle, as they often are. Yeah. That's right. yeah. yeah. And but so it's what seems that's- to me. it right. seems to me that
1: that's almost like a sea change, though. My understanding was, and you're the expert, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that Republicans are the ones that who traditionally voted by mail. And now you're seeing that that's not the case. It's the Democrats who are voting by mail. I'm just wondering, can we refer to that as the Trump effect?
2: Well, a lot of people are. Um, I would say that is the one that is the one big change. So I mentioned earlier that a lot of patterns have stayed the same. Just everybody, you know, more people are voting by mail. So by you know by race, ethnicity, age, but party was the big kind of switch, right? Dramatically so. And you're absolutely right. Republicans were. Uh, favoring vote by mail previously historically more. You know, there was a a systematic kind of attack against voting by mail, not only by the president at the time, but also by many others. And there's still a campaign of misinformation. We saw it in the recall election here in California just last month and leading up to it. So yeah, there's a lot of concern, misinformation, um, fear that voters have, and it is skewed more for right Republicans, as as we know. Not just for how they're actually voting, but we see a lot of survey evidence that tells us that they lack a confidence in round vote by now. Well, up next, we're going to
1: take a look at that issue of security and accuracy of mail-in ballots. What has, what will the increase in mail-in ballots, larger, long, longer voting periods, and changing electorate mean for future elections? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Mindy Romero from USC's Center for Inclusive Democracy about how the 2020 election changed how people voted and what that may mean for future elections. You know, Mindy, we've all heard about the allegations about security and accuracy uh, of mail-in ballots. What is the percentage of mail-in ballots that are rejected, and what are the main reasons they're rejected?
2: Yeah, well, in any election, there is a certain percentage. It varies. Um, In 2020, in the general election, it was just point. Five percent, half a percent, um, but that still equated to over eighty thousand vote by mail ballots that were rejected because we had such a high turnout.
1: So yeah, so it's so it's it's a it's a very small proportion of of, of the number of of uh, vote in uh, ballots that were 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 cast. But what were the what were the main reasons? Is it signatures either not on the ballots or they don't match what they have at at uh, at the, reg- the register's office? What?
2: Yeah, well, this last November, the main reason was signature issues, either not having a signature, forgetting to sign your ballot envelope, or having what we call a bad signature, a signature that's not matching, because every vote by mail ballot does have to be signature verified. There are as part of the security um, protocols. Um, and then the other reason is being late. Now, typically, until November, um, we the top three reasons are those two signature issues, and the top reason is always late. That's first. It can vary a little bit by subgroup. Um, we saw a big change in November that number one reason wasn't being late, and we think that that was because the state gave a 17-day window for vote-by-mail ballots, as long as they were postmarked by Election Day, to actually get to your local office. And so, late ballots went way down.
1: So, what about demographics? Do they factor into rejection rates?
2: They do. And again, um, they did in November and, and they also have historically. So we know that Latinos, um, new voters, young voters, age 18 to 24 in any okay. given election, including November, have higher rejection rates are more likely to get their ballot, vote by mail ballot rejected. And there's also differences by County, um, by party, by you know other statuses as well, but race, ethnicity and age are the kind of big ones that we. No, always.
1: So, so overall, I mean, we're talking about, uh, what, is it, what does it tell us? What are your, What does your study tell us about the overall voting experience?
2: You know, um, in terms of just understanding that there was this big shift, right? So first off, we saw not only vote by mail use go up, but only a third of all actual ballots were actually sent through the mail in November. People chose lots of different ways. Uh, as we said earlier, almost 40% dropped them off. Another 16% dropped them off at a voting location. 40% dropped them off at a- drop Don't off. trust the mail. Um, people had concerns about the mail. Um, people Mm -hmm. also really want to, some voters just have no concerns at all. Some voters want to actually see it go in a box. If they're not doing it the old fashioned way and voting in person, they still want to see it go in a dropbox. And sometimes it really matters for them if it's actually a physical location that is staffed because they want to know somebody's there and they don't trust a dropbox.
3: Um,
2: so how people voted changed, um, we know there was a party des- designation certainly too but we also did a survey a representative survey of voters um, statewide coming out of November and we still heard that a lot of voters didn't know about all of their options even though they, their voting behavior may have changed they didn't um, know about or weren't aware of all of the different options that they could have used potentially um, and that there's this huge need for outreach and voter education. Yeah, I, wanted,
1: I wanted to follow up on that in terms of voter education I mean Do your findings show that we really need more voter education?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a no-brainer because we know in every election there's always a large segment of the electorate that uh, isn't fully aware of not just their options of how they can vote, but they're not aware of all the messages that are out there, that they're still um, kind of information low, and this can impact not only how they vote, where they vote, but even if they vote. And in 2020, despite all of, and there was a lot of resources, a lot of money that was spent just educating people about the pandemic change and these new new options that were available to them. And then, of course, the counties that adopted the Voter's Choice Act for the first time put in a lot of effort and a lot of partnership with local groups to get the word out. Um, It's not that any of that wasn't effective. I think all of it, you know, was tremendous good work. But the hill to climb, the mountain to climb, is just that large. And um, we know that voters... Wow. Many did not know all of their options. They weren't as comfortable with all of their options. And it's, you know, going forward, we can't assume that, you know, everybody was educated in 2020 and the, and we're going to basically be good to go in future elections. No, we still have a lot of information that still has to get out there to voters. Yeah, but it's but it's
1: great to know that we are. Yeah, we, but we are seeing we did see at least last time record uh, turnout, which is which is tremendous. That's what you want in a democracy. And it, it kind of goes better. with. And it goes with the title of of your organization, the Center for Inclusive Democracy. I want to thank Minnie Romero uh, from the center for joining us. Up next, we're going to take a look at California's likely voters. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Heppler with the Maddie Institute. So who are California's likely voters? Recently, the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California took a look, and Dean Bonner with the PPIC is here to tell us about their results. Welcome to the Maddie Report, Dean. Uh, Thanks for having me. Good to have you back. Um, So how many registered voters are there in California and what percent of those eligible voters, uh, those eligible to vote, are registered?
4: Sure enough, today as of the most recent uh, report of registration, which was 15 days prior to the September recall, there are 22.1 million registered voters. And this makes up about 9 in 10 of eligible voters in California, which there are about 24.8 million registered voters. But when you kind of zoom out a little bit, um, we're actually about 75 percent of all adults in California are represented by registered voters. Those seem like pretty
1: good numbers.
4: Yeah. You know, we've actually, you know, have seen uh, some
1: improvement in recent
4: years. Yeah, I I want to ask you
1: about that historically. How does that kind of match up? How do the numbers match up historically?
4: Sure enough, you know, I think, uh, you know, as you know, California has been doing a lot of things to in- encourage people to register to vote and to increase voter registration. So if we just look back four years, we actually see that just 78% of eligible adults were registered, and that's an 11 point increase. If we go all the way back to 2003, that was 70 percent were registered, and that's a 19 point increase. We have, you know, online voter registration as well as Motor Voter 2.0, which allows folks to uh, register or, or update their registration with interactions at the DMV.
1: Yeah, it seems like you know being at the DMV and like, you know a one-stop shop and getting everything done that seems to be pretty helpful, pretty convenient. Seems like it. You know, that is, as far as younger folks, also
4: like the online registration, as well as the pre-registration of those who are 16 and older, which is an
1: important part of it, too. Yeah, we tell them how important it is to vote, but we got to make it really convenient, Uh, you know, but it is what it is, and and so we understand that. Um, You know, you report that the likely voters lean Democratic, but are ideologically mixed. What do you mean by that? Sure enough. So,
4: among our likely voters, who are the people we deem, uh, first of all, who are registered and who we deem most likely to vote, we find that you know about 48% say that they're registered as Democrats, about one in four say they're registered as Republican, and just over one in five say they're registered as independent. However, when we look at political ideology and how they kind of identify, we find that just 40% identify as liberal, but 29% identify as moderate and 31% identify as conservative. So obviously there are some Democrats who don't consider themselves necessarily liberal and some Republic, some um, conservatives who don't necessarily consider
1: themselves as, as registered Republicans. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the Pew Research Center just sent out kind of this thing where you can check, you can ask they ask you several questions, and they, they're like six different categories kind on of a sliding scale from very conservative to very liberal. you have got to figure out where you are. So uh, that's been on uh, you know, the Maddie Institute uh, publications. But you can go check the, the Pew Research Center if you want to find out where you stand or where you lie, wherever it is on the political spectrum. I want to ask you about independent voters. Um, those are either not registered with, with a political party, no NPP, no party preference, or not registered at all. I'm just wondering, do they lean one way or the other? Well, yeah. In our surveys, when we
4: identify independent likely voters, so these are folks who are registered to vote, but registered as NPP folks. Mm -hmm. And in California, they do tend to lean towards the Democratic Party. And this in in recent years has made California become slightly more blue um, because of the fact that just over half of independent likely voters lean towards the Democratic Party. About just over a third lean towards the Republican Party. And so that's really important when you start breaking down the kind of, you know, the politics of the state, having half of independents lean towards the Democratic Party obviously makes a big difference when it comes to elections.
1: Yeah, yeah. And not quite independent course, they're kind of leaning Democratic. But I thought that the number, at least for a period of time there, NPP, the percentage was actually higher than the number of Republicans that were registered. It was
4: higher there for a little bit. It's kind of tracked downward. There's some kind of uh, belief that, um, and there was a whole expose by the LA Times, which looked at some folks who thought they were registered as independent were actually registered as uh, the American Independent Party, right, as well as the fact that when people automatically register through the DMV, they get sent something, they're registered as NPP, and then they have to change it. And so some of that could have been some kind of back-end mechanism. But right now, they're pretty even Republicans and and independents in party registration.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The American Independent Party is actually a very conservative party, and people didn't realize that they thought they were registering as independents. Um, NPP is, if you want to be an independent. Um, Last question I want to ask you, we've only got about 30, 45 seconds left in this segment, but what can you tell us about the demographics of California's likely voters?
4: I mean, I think the best way to talk about the demographics of the likely voters in California is to look at what we like to call the exclusive electorate in California. And the fact that that likely voters and those who show up at the polls look different than the overall adult population of California. They tend to be older, they tend to be more educated, they tend to be more affluent, homeowners and U.S. born. They also tend to be more likely uh, white than the share of their population overall. And among unregistered folks, we find that six in 10 are Latinos, despite the fact that just 35% of the adult population are Latinos. And so there's some misrepresentation there. And so when folks go to the ballot box to make policy, the likely voters don't necessarily reflect all things. Right. Of- so,
1: yeah, some, some groups are punching above their weight, some punching below their weight, I guess you'd say. We're all, next, we're going to take a look at California voters and party profiles, that conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Dean Bonner with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California about California voters and party profiles. I um, want to ask you kind of to follow up on current California voter breakdown. Let's talk about that again between Democrats, Republicans, and independents, and how have those numbers changed over time? Like we were talking about, you know, NPP, independent voters, used to be above Republicans. Now they're not. I mean, how, has those num- how have those numbers changed over time?
4: Sure enough, you know. So today, as the most recent report, uh, the share of Republican, the share of the registered voters are forty-six point five percent Democrat, twenty-four point one percent Republican, and twenty-three point three percent Independent or NPP voters, and so. Um, Republicans and independents are quite similar now. And if we look back just four years, you know, the results are fairly similar, you know, within a point or two here and there. But if we go back to 2003 before the last recall, that's where you'll see a lot of movement. The share who are Republicans are actually down 11 points. The share who are no party preference is actually up seven points. And the share who are Democratic are up three points. So there has been some shifts if you go back to the recall in 2003.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. First of all, to note that you were talking 24% are registered Republicans, 46% registered Democrats. So if you're wondering, you know, why the Democrats control two thirds of the legislature, you know, they have twice as many on a percentage basis of registered voters. That's one clue. The second thing I'm wondering is, you would think that Trump, uh, President Trump, ex-President Trump has energized a lot of people in the Republican base, you would think that they would have more registered voters, but the data doesn't seem to support that.
4: Well, some of that we think is has to do with there are folks who tend to be conservative, but maybe not espouse some of the same views as the former president, or maybe they were just turned off by the way uh, his his kind of style, let's say. And so that led to some folks in the Republican Party, you know, leaving the party. But as as I said, it's not that different. It's, yeah, it's just, just shy of two points down since
1: 2017. And it may have, it's... you know, and, and President Trump may not only have motivated people to register as Republicans, but also to register as Democrats. And then other than this NPP, the independents, some people who may not, may like the, maybe the substance, but not the style, they become, they become independent. So that is also kind of gain folk, gain some traction. And about those independents, you were talking earlier, they're not totally independent, are they?
4: No, the, I mean, it's the myth of the independent voter and the, the this topic has been debated in political science circles for years. And today, you know, we see that just 12 percent are saying that they lean towards neither party. And given this hyper partisanship in recent years, we've actually seen a change since two thousand seven, we've seen a nine-point increase in the share uh, leaning towards the Democratic Party, where it's now at 52%. And we've seen a seven-point increase in the share identifying as Republican, which is currently at 36%. And there are just 12% of independents who actually say they lean
1: towards neither party at this point in time. And that's actually gone down. Um, It seems we are becoming more polarized, right? It's... Yeah, I mean, that's just
4: that's just where we are as far as the country, it seems like, and and the state just kind of
1: mirrors that. Right, right. Um, I want to ask you about this. You noted earlier that likely voters are disproportionately white, and you report that likely re- Democratic voters are more diverse and, and have many demographic traits of likely voters across, uh, uh, that, that differ across parties. I mean, what do you mean? What are the details here in terms of you know Democratic, Republican, independents versus you know who are where white voters are, Latino voters are, Asian Americans, African Americans, things like that?
4: Sure enough. Well, the Democratic Party has often been referred to as a big tent party, right? There are bunches of different types of folks and coalitions who kind of coalesce under the Democratic Party. And so that leads to different types of folks. And so, you know, if we just look at race, for example, fewer than half of Democratic likely voters in our survey are white at 46%. Um, while for the Republican Party, 69% of Republican likely voters in our survey are white, and about half of independent likely voters are white. And so that's one big difference. But that's not where it ends. Democrats tend to be much more uh, young. Republicans tend to be older. Democrats are more likely to be women than men, while independents and Republicans are more likely to be uh Sorry, Democrats happen to be women more likely than men, and Republican and independents more likely to be men than women.
1: I'm sorry, run against a hard deadline. I mean, the, the, the data is really interesting. The other thing I, I would mention is, you know, difference between you know educated and, and, and less educated. There's also a split there as well. So a lot of interesting stuff. Encourage people to check out the PPI website for more information. I want to thank Dean Bonner, our guest. This is Mark Kepler for the Matterport. Thanks for joining us. If you want to stay up to date on state and local politics, you can sign up for our free e-newsletter, The Maddie Daily, by logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.org.
0: The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.
1: Does the Valley's electorate mirror what's going on with the rest of the state? Only more so? We'll ask. Jessica Trounstein with UC Merced and Tom Holyoke with Fresno State. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kempel with the Maddie Institute. So what about the San Joaquin Valley? Do the changes in the Valley's electorate mirror what's happening at the state level, or are the trends here decidedly different? And are those changes in the Valley's electorate consistent across region, or do they vary between the southern, central, and southern parts of the San Joaquin Valley? We're fortunate to have two political science professors from the Valley's major universities here to answer those questions. Tom Holyoke is with Fresno State, and Jessica uh, Troutstein is with UC Merced. Welcome back to the Matty Report Valley Views Edition.
5: Good morning. Thanks so much. So, uh, so Tom,
1: let me start with you first. Uh, if if uh, we're traveling kind of south through Kern County, north through Fresno, Madera, uh, through the valley's political landscape, what do the registration numbers look like in the those various areas? Kind of south as we're going to the central part of the San Joaquin Valley. Have they changed a lot over time?
5: Well, the, the registrations have gone up marginally so. Actually, registrations aren't all that bad going through the valley, at least not in my opinion. I mean, down in a, you know, Kern and Kern and we counties were about mid 70 percent in terms of registration, at least percentage of people who could be registered. You're up to a Fresno County, it's up to 82%. And actually, wow, that's, those, those those are, that, that, that number that's yeah, un- un- surprising. Morning, so that number's kind of
1: surprising. 82% is is a fairly high number.
5: Yeah, well, it looks like according to the data I've got out of 608,000 people who could register, nearly 502,000 actually are. I'm wondering, do you, do you think that anything has to do with,
1: you know, frankly, President Trump, that either conservatives are, are registering because they want to vote Republican or Democrats or independents are registering because they want to vote against uh, Trump candidates?
5: Well, more broadly speaking, I think it has a lot to do with party competition. I mean, like Fresno County has been kind of seesawing back and forth between Republican and Democratic uh, voter edges. And I think both parties have been investing quite a bit in voter registration. So I think that accounts for much of the percentage.
1: You know, that, that's, that's a really interesting concept in my era is labor relations. And when they say that if, if unions don't spend money on organizing, they die, right? you got to organize new members. It's the same politically, right? You've got you've to organize new folks in your party. So, so Jessica, let me ask you, you know, uh, you're up at UC Merced, you're looking at the North Valley. What are you seeing in terms of registration numbers in the North Valley?
3: Registration has gone up significantly since 2018. Um, And uh, like Tom said, in the south part of San Joaquin Valley, uh, we're not doing so bad. Merced is lagging a little bit behind, say, Stanifloss County, but um, generally, registration has gone up. Um, And I think, you know, for very similar reasons, party competition, and I think, you know, politics has been very visible in the last couple of years, and people have understood that um, participating and turning out to vote. can actually make a difference, and we've seen a couple of elections where we've had you know massive swings, massive changes in what people expected to happen. Uh, so you know, when when politics gets exciting, people turn out to vote, or at least they register.
1: Well, we look at you look at the ratings on you know on cable news networks are just you know gone through the roof. Um, a lot of it's around politics, right? Uh, by the way, do you think there's a Trump effect working in in the, in the North Valley as well?
3: I, you know, there most definitely there's a Trump effect. You know, both uh, the supporters, and both the support, supporters and <laughs> opponents. Um, but mm-hmm. I think that there was also a recall effect, right? So I think that you know people it turned out to vote in um, higher numbers than we might expect in a in an odd year, um, you know, election. And I think again there have been some um, exciting political um, movements in the in the last several years. And, you know, we've seen nationally that there have been different groups of people who have been, been brought into the registration roles. Um, over the last couple of years, we've seen some uptick in young in young registration rates. Yeah, I was gonna um, ask
1: you that. I mean, traditionally, you know, young people don't register that much and they don't vote, right? I mean, that's what was my understanding.
3: That, right. So, you know, historically, we've had a hard time getting younger voters to participate, to register and to participate. Um, and we have seen an uptick in in young voters um, registering and participating since 2018.
1: And my understanding, too, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because you guys are the experts, but uh, voting is a learned behavior, right? Um,
3: That's right. So- if
1: you do it once, chances are, you know, you're, you're to totally do it again. Be-
3: yeah. So, you know, the single best predictor of whether or not you're going to register to vote is whether or not your parents registered to vote, which is, you know, a challenge for the Valley because we have a very large immigrant population um, who may not be registered to vote for various reasons. Maybe they have, maybe they're undocumented or maybe they, you know, didn't, didn't come with the practice of, of participating in elections where they were from. Um, and so their children need to learn that Participation in a uh, fr- from their environment and so. Places where you have large uh, immigrant populations and you don't have political organizations that are bringing immigrant voters to the polls, it can you can see a lag um, in the participation rates of children. And that, you know um, that,
1: that's a that's a really interesting point. I mean, your point is really well taken. They may be coming from countries where they just don't believe in the government, so what, what's the point of voting? It's all rigged. So
3: or they might they, have been prohibited from participating. Or sure. right. So ver- for various reasons. Or you know, when they come to the United States, there's there's a lot to manage when you're an immigrant coming to the United States and voter. Mm-hmm registration may, might not be the first thing um, that that you
1: that yeah you're that, 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 that's a really interesting point so so, so let me ask you this so, you know one of the findings in the recent PPIC report was that likely California about likely California voters is how independent voters have become you know more likely to lean Democrat or Republican um, is that just a reflection of our increasingly partisan times or you know and are you seeing that in the valley as well um, they used to call you know politicians valley valleycrats which were, you know, really independent voters, truly independent. I'm thinking, are they going the way of the unicorn?
5: Well, from what we can tell, I'm not sure we have that great data on that here in the Valley, but it certainly seems like that um, even the uh, decline to state voters, the no party preference voters do seem to to be breaking one way or the other. I mean, they're, you know, Democratic leaning, Republican leaning, even if they aren't actually members of the party. Uh, True independents, not quite sure how many of them there really are. Now, the whole Valley thing, yeah, there was a tradition for a long time of, you know, you know, people sort of voting Valley interests and politicians kind of, you know, prioritizing Valley issues, regardless of party. That doesn't seem to exist so much anymore. I mean, I think Jim Costa, to some extent, kind of holds on to that, maybe even David Valadeo too in Congress, but I don't see any of that from like, you know, Devin Nunes or Kevin McCarthy.
1: You no, know, it's interesting. You you, you bring up uh, Jim Costa. My understanding was that you know when he was first elected to the assembly, you know Ken Matty, Republican leader, was in the state senate, and he actually Ken Matty brought Costa under his wing, which you would never hear of that today. A Republican, you know, talking and working with a Democrat. Uh, that was kind of uh, maybe days gone by. Uh, Jessica, what do you think about that issue of uh, the the partisan nature of politics? Certainly, nationwide, you see it in the state. Are we seeing it here in the valley? And and what about those, you know, those valleycrats that used to exist? Do they still exist?
3: Yeah. So um, it's it's actually a myth that we have this big rise in independent voters in in the United States anywhere or in California. Um, we do have you know a big chunk of voters in Merced County. I think it's about twenty five percent of the electorate is declined to state. But when you actually ask people, so right, there's a difference between how you register to vote. In, in what party you choose. That permits you to participate in the primary election and how you identify, right? And so the question that PPIC is asking is about identity. It's not about party registration. So I can tell you that 25% or 23% of Merced County voters are declined to state voters. And I guarantee you that about 93% of those voters will typically pick one party or another and in political science lingo we call this we call these people leaners right so mm-hmm. we have strong partisans we have weak partisans and then we have those people where they they initially tell you that they're independent and then when you push them a little bit you say okay well I know you're an independent but do you do you lean one way or the other? About 90% of people who initially choose independent will pick one party or the other. Um, they'll say that they lean one direction or the other. And research shows that leaners behave very similarly to weak partisans. So that mean, what that means is that strong partisans are, are you know overwhelmingly going to choose the candidate that their party nominates for office at any level of government. Weak partisans They mostly choose those candidates, a Mm -hmm. little less so. And leaners tend to act just like weak partisans. They mostly choose the candidates from the party that they lean toward. Um, Sometimes they don't. And that sometimes they don't, is sort of what brings up this Valley crap, you know, identity, right? That we have sort of a mixture of, uh, that, that we have a willingness to go against party registration or party identity here in the Valley in a way that um, is different than, than some parts of California and some parts of the nation. And I do think that we have, um, I, I think that those people still exist, but I think as Tom said, you know, we're, we've moved in a pretty partisan direction. And the reason why the Valley looks Purple a lot of the time, you know. We don't. We we end up with very close, very divided elections um, in a, in a lot of cases. That's because our our electorate is actually quite divided, right? So we yeah, have, yeah. you know, we're, we're, it's pretty narrowly democratic or pretty narrowly Republican in any of the elections that we see.
1: Yeah, it's just some some very close elections. I mean, you know, by by hundreds of votes or you know thousands at most. It's it, these are really tight elections. I mean, even someone. You know, like, like Devin Nunes, who used to be winning at, you know, 20 percent is now winning 6 percent, 9 percent. it's a, that was a lot closer. Um, and who knows what re- we're not going to talk about redistricting, but that's a whole other a whole other topic. Let me ask you this, Jessica. Um, it was not so long ago the Republicans were pretty much they pretty much dominated the valley. Uh, it, that's increasingly uh, no longer the case. The valley's changing, uh, certainly demographically. And that seems to be creating a headwind uh, for a political party whose base is more white, more male. And older compared to valley demographics assuming that demographics are not destiny is the problem the messengers uh, the messengers or the message and do you think uh that there are some short and long-term uh what do you think about the short and long-term prospects of the republican party in the san joaquin valley and maybe in the north valley in particular
3: well, I guess I'd start off by saying that I think in a lot of ways demographics are destiny. <laughs> and so you know the changes in the valley, the the changes in the economic structure, the changes in the racial and ethnic makeup of the valley, and the increasing registration among Latinos and Hmong residents um, have, you know, they have it, that has changed the partisan, you know, split in the valley. And we have seen particularly in the North Valley, um, you know, Merced in particular has become increasingly democratic. And we ha- there is now a very strong Democratic registration majority in Merced. It is it is very narrow. Uh, it's very tight in a, a little bit north of us, right? So there are lots mm. of, there's still lots of division in the Valley. Um, and, you know, Republicans have uh, struggled in California basically since Pete Wilson um, to, to create a coalition that was winnable statewide and winnable, um, you know, county to county. And I think, you know, a lot of this is Trying to figure out for the Republican Party, sort of who who their audience is and who they can bring into the coalition. Um, and you know, there has been lots of talk for years about bringing, you know, that there is a the, the possibility of bringing Latinos into the Republican coalition. I think uh, remains something that that um, smart and and interested people um, in the Republican Party uh, think about.
1: We I, we can go back. I, I'm going to date myself. We can go back to Jack Kemp. Um, sure. You know you know, what is it, 1980s when he was talking talking this uh, talk. Um, Tom, let me ask you, so what do you think? Are, are demogra- demographics destiny for the valiant? And if the demographics are changing, we all agree demographics are changing, is there a way the Republicans can appeal to that changing demographic?
5: Well, demographics mix to some extent, but I mean, you, there, there are certainly other things that mean an awful lot to voters. I mean, we've seen, you know, you know the, the economy always remains kind of one of the preeminent issues used in politics, but, you know, it nationally, we've seen some other things come, come up too, particularly a lot of the issues around education, which seem to have played a relatively big role in the uh, Virginia gubernatorial election. And, you know, some of that's going to matter here too, but a lot of it's going to be economic opportunity. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons is that Republicans, I think, maintain a pretty tight hold down in Kern County um, because, you know, you know, energy and oil drive a lot of the economy down there, and that's been seen as under attack by Democrats and, you know, Consequently, a lot of people react, you know, thinking that their livelihood is being attacked and they go Republican. And that's the same thing with large portions of the, uh, the, the rural part of the valley. Or, you know, farmers have seen, uh, you know, felt that you know, Democrats have been much more hostile to them than, than Republican administrations.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and so you're thinking just because of the economic realities that Republicans can, can keep the same message and, and be appealing? Because you know, their message is, hey, the Democrats are, are hurting us economically.
5: Yes, I think to, to some extent they've had they've had some success at that, and you hear that a lot in the rhetoric that comes out of you know, say from Kevin McCarthy, um, you know he's not only lead the uh, you know representative from Bakersfield, but of course the lead Republican in the House of Representatives. Yeah, that you know,
1: that's interesting. Well, you know, up next we're going to talk about the supposedly nonpartisan nature of local offices and officeholders in the valley. Is that increasingly a thing of fiction? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition.
0: The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.
1: Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, you've seen it at city council meetings, at county board of supervisor meetings, not to mention school board meetings. These supposedly nonpartisan offices are becoming increasingly not so un- not unpartisan. partisan um, We're talking with two political science professors from the Valley's major public universities, Tom Holyoke with Fresno State and Jessica Trounstein with UC Merced. So Tom, I want to kind of follow up on that a little bit. Uh, we're seeing kind of, you know, this increasing partisan nature of politics and we're seeing it at the local level, which, you know, used to consider themselves non-partisan.
5: I'm just wondering, what are the implications? Well, <laughs> First off, I think it's going to start turning off anybody who wants to run for office at any level. I mean, geez, when school boards are like the most contentious political arena, I mean, who who's going to want to be on a school board board right now? And all that happens is people come in and shout at you and threaten you and then and go you know, pick at your house afterwards and even threaten to kill you. I mean, we, what we've really seen in the last few years is a, a really hostile crowds coming out to school boards and, and really threatening people. And this is just not at all the sort of you know, behavior you want, not the environment that you want. If you want to get good people into politics and school boards are sort of kind of like the bottom rung of the, of the political ladder. You know, one of the things we've seen is is
1: uh, people uh, city, you know, uh, elected officials, uh, council members on both sides um, showing up to these partisan rallies that in the past local officials kind of kept a lower profile. They didn't want to, you know, label themselves necessarily as a strident Republican or a strident Democrat, but you're seeing that more. I mean,
5: what do you think that means for for local politics, Tom? Well, it means local politics is starting to reflect national politics in the sense that you build a political career based on a kind of a high media profile. I mean, that's what we've started to really see. I mean, Donald Trump was really very good at that, building up this, you know, kind of big, larger than life persona through the media, including through social media, And I think a lot of the you know other politicians have started to learn from that. They want to have this kind of constant constant presence, and so you see them. You know, we got county supervisors, members of the city council, even school board members. uh, You know, in the media far more than you would ever see, and they're tweeting and they're on Instagram and you know all this stuff constantly. Yeah, and
1: Jessica, asking you, is it social media? I mean, the other thing I'm thinking is what they say: all politics is local, and and. You know, to get things done, you know, very much like in the field I work in, in labor relations, in politics, it's about compromise. And I would seem to me that when you demonize your opponent, it's going to be a lot harder to compromise.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot going on here in in the questions that you're asking. So, so I want to take a step back and say, national politics and local politics particularly school board politics, have been interwoven for 100 years. I mean, when Ruby Bridges tried to enter that school and the federal marshals had to walk her into that school and there were angry, angry parents Mm -hmm. trying to keep her out of that school, those were fights that were happening at the local level that reflected national partisan politics. And what's changed is the sorting that we have had into the parties, right? And so, in the you know, in Ruby Bridges' case, those white, angry white mothers who were chanting and trying to keep her from entering that school would have been Democrats, and that is what's different now. Is that even if they would have voted Republican at the national level, now what we see is a, a more uh, assorted public, so that people are. Democrats all the way down, and their Republicans all the way down. And that has been a process of change in American politics over the last Fifty years or so, right? So this that's part of what this polarization looks like, is that people are no longer willing to uh, choose one party at one level of government and choose a different party at a different level of government. And part of the reason why local officials tried to distance themselves from partisan politics was because they wanted to take advantage of this. They wanted to take advantage of the fact that people were willing to vote for a Republican in their QK supervisor race, even if they liked the Democratic candidate for president. Now, because we've had this sorting of individuals into the parties so that their ideological consistency their you know liberals are mostly democrats and conservatives are mostly republicans today at all levels of government it becomes advantageous for the, for local politicians and local actors in the local political universe to to, to build on those on those partisan cues so you know I, again i could go on about this for a long time but you know the reason why we have nonpartisan politics in the at the local level was precisely because local politicians wanted to build coalitions that crossed party lines. There's lots of evidence of this in the historical record. And so to the extent that that doesn't make sense anymore, that you can build a a strong coalition um, through the party now at any level of government, politicians are gonna do that. And local activists are gonna try to do that. So I wanna, you know, it does feel different right now than it did maybe 10 years ago, but this is not an anomaly in American history.
1: Yeah, that, that's a that's a good point. Sometimes we forget. I mean, you know, gotta look back always. And yeah, some of that stuff really yeah, that did happen. Um, so just let me, Jessica, let me ask you this. You know, some think you know the state's housing crisis, coupled you know with the increased acceptance of telework, uh, that seems to have increased exponentially as a result of uh, of the COVID pandemic, uh, may have political implications for the Valley as more people move from the coast to the Valley where they can afford a house with a yard and and live a a more normal life, particularly if they don't have to make that commute, right? So do you see uh, that having a significant impact on the electorate in the North Valley, either in the short or long term?
3: I definitely think that this is a long-term kind of effect that we're going to see. In the short term, I mean, we we do get commuters from the North Valley all the way to the Bay Area, but the Valley's economy has not changed substantially enough for that for those relocated Bay Area voters to stay within the Valley and work within the Valley, um, you know right now. I think over time that could really change. And so, but yes, you could see the possibility of, you know, more and more people moving to the Valley. And, you know, we have this massive inequality in California in the way in which housing development is happening. Housing development is happening mostly in the regions and the areas where we, um, you know, have, have had sort of less dense housing, right? So the valley is booming with housing construction, and that is going to continue to keep costs low, and it's going to continue to keep costs high in the Bay Area, that the Bay Area is simply refusing to build any housing. And and that is, you know, eventually in the long run, I don't think in the short run, but I think in the long run could really shift the demographics of California.
1: You, you know, and I see that, Tom, I live in, you know, North Fresno, uh, Clovis area, and first of all, the rents in, in in Fresno are are increasing among the highest rates in the in the nation in terms of percentage increases. And I'm seeing a tremendous amount of housing, you know, in North Fresno and in, in Clovis. I'm just and, and a lot of people think that these are people that are, you know, telecommuters from the Bay Area that are coming here and and just telecommuting. And I do have some some personal friends who were basically working in in the South Bay, but now because of COVID, they're telecommuting and they're thinking they may not be going back to the commute of where they literally would would live in in the South Bay for the week and be down here in their home on the weekends, that's no longer the case. Maybe they can stay here the entire week. I'm just wondering, do you see the political, do you think there's going
5: to be political implications for that? I think Jessica's right. In the long run, that's going to happen. I mean, the expansion is, is certainly happening. I mean, I don't even recognize North Fresno anymore. It's going to be one big dense housing unit between you know, Copper River and Fryant. But you know, it's 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 slowly expanding and it's going to probably start to continue and I mean start to continue, start to increase, especially if high-speed rail ever actually works out. Then we'll probably have a lot a lot more commuting. And in the end, we could actually start having developments linking up the cities of the valley. In fact, as what I've been telling people recently is if you want to look at the future of the west side of the Sierra Nevada, you may want to start looking at the east side of the Rocky Mountains to see what happened around Denver when, you know, huge numbers of people started moving out there because it was affordable. At least it was affordable until property taxes went to the roof.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, Jessica, too, they have the H train now. Altmont Quarter Express. It's going to be. It's building down. You know, I guess to Merced, um, and that's going to have now have access to the to the Bay Area.
3: Yeah,
1: you know that. I would think that makes it a little easier commute. I mean, anybody that's right try to drive to the Bay Area. You know, right during rush hour, forget it. I mean, you're you're sitting there in a parking lot. To uh, the,
3: yes, absolutely. To the extent that our economies are connected in those ways by transportation and through telecommuting, um, we'll see these big changes. You know, Tom, let
1: me let me, let me jump back to you. I want to talk, ask you a little bit about Kern County. See if you're willing to to give a, a perspective on that. It seems to me that that Kern County is also getting a lot of overflow from from L.A. Um, that that a lot of folks are now choosing to live in Bakersfield. Again, could change the politics in Bakersfield if more folks from Los Angeles uh, and the south of moving into Kern County.
5: Yeah, you know, I've recently started to become aware of that, hearing about people who actually moved out of the LA area over to Bakersfield. Um, You know, a lot of them telecommute, but I've actually met a couple of people who commute over the grapevine, which seems to me to be a rather extraordinary thing. But, you know, it's just a matter of, of affordability in a lot of these cases. I mean, LA and the Bay Area are so expensive to live in. And, Bakersfield and that area is still you know, relatively affordable, at least at the moment, because the more this happens, the more property values are going to go up and the more expensive things you're going to get. Yeah, one
1: of the things I have noticed when you see new developments uh, in, in the Fresno-Clovis area, boy, the backyards have really shrunk. And they're actually seeing more two-story and even three-story homes, which is you never saw that in, in the past. So things are certainly changing in the region. I want to thank our guests for an enlightening conversation, Jessica Trounstein with UC Merced, and Tom Holyoke with Fresno State. Thanks, you My guys, board. for joining us. Thank this is Mark Cooper for the Matterport Valley Views Edition. Thank you for joining us today.
0: The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.